substance equals spin The propagandas win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now This made with good intentions Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the independent media and politics podcast we are recording on Wednesday, the 31st of January, last one for the first month of 2024. The International Court of Justice has made a ruling, an interim ruling, on South Africa's application under the Genocide Convention in opposition to Israel. We are joined by scholar of genocide, genocide scholar, Karen Kelly, this evening to discuss what's been happening in Gaza, some of the ways in which the uh, accusations of genocide have been discussed, how that discourse has developed, and how the opponents of that discourse have tried to unpick and discredit it. And then we're going to go through the ICJ ruling and discuss that as well, because, my God, there has been next to zero serious uh, coverage of that document itself. Uh, Instead, it has been given over to different media pundits uh, and the spokespeople of the Western countries and Israel itself who are complicit and implementing genocide to misrepresent continually in order to, I guess, try to give cover to what they're doing in Gaza. At any rate, we'll get into that in more detail. Thank you for joining me, Karen. And do you just want to introduce yourself to our audience before we kick it off? Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, um, so I um, I studied history at Massey. I did uh, my honours um, thesis was about the uh, Second Indochina War, more commonly known here as the Vietnam War, and the genocidal nature of it. Um, and then I went on to do a master's and then I wrote on the genocide in Iraq, basically, the US genocide in Iraq, a little bit um, about also Korea and some of uh, the US's imperialist, imperialist past. And then after that, I just started blogging about genocide. And you've been writing about it since, about this issue, since things kind of began to go very badly downhill. Um, after October seventh, yes, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yep. So I mean, you know, to me, um, the occupation is already genocidal. So it's hardly surprising that any outburst of violence is genocidal in, in nature. What was your, I guess, impetus in this particular case to start writing more long form pieces about it? Well, um, I think one of the things about genocide that, um, well, I find a a little bit of a frustration is that we have this very simplistic discourse about genocide as a kind of a crime of passion, of madness, and so forth. And um, the actual concept of genocide really lends itself to a strategic analysis of a way of using violence to enact power that obviously there is a, a... an established association between this and settler colonialism, but there is just as as uh, valid a link between it and imperialism because you are looking at a people who are, you know, one of the defined groups in in the genocide um, convention, ethnical, racial, religious, etc., and trying to establish power over them by weakening them. 
So to me, um, the concept of genocide helps us understand what Israel's doing and why it's doing. And you've seen that, you know, that misrepresentation of it, I guess, or that, no, I guess misrepresentation is the right term, uh, as a way for Israel to try and claim the self-defense argument, right? Uh, So they're so outraged and so, like, terrified. Uh, and, And I won't go into, like, arguments about whether or not, like, what happened on October 7th was X or Y. Uh, that's not what we're here today. But it has definitely been used in the way that Israel has prosecuted and implemented this genocide uh, to claim, you know, we are acting in self-defense and build this outrage across the West and through uh, Western media and and Western institutions to... I, I, yeah, I, I, I don't even... like. Very few people are fooled. I, I don't think even mm. a lot of the people who are who are supporting it are really fooled, but yeah. they are attempting to use it to conceal the strategic nature of what they are attempting. Yeah, and I think also in, in this, I mean, I don't want to get ahead uh, too much here, but of course part of the, the, the thing with the judicial ruling as well is that it's very, and it's not just that, like the uh, UNGA resolution asking for a an immediate and enduring cessation of hostilities that we voted for and then both of our both of the Chris's came out and said we were against a ceasefire it's, you know they're providing this um they're providing pretexts for leaders who are presumably under pressure from uh, overseas sources to have their sort of get it out of jail free card, and so, I mean, in a way, it's kind of childish. It's like that, you know, saying, "Oh, I had my fingers crossed." Uh, you know, they didn't use the word "ceasefire." They used a different word for "ceasing fire." <laughs> you know? uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, and yeah, this, this, I mean, this is why genocide is a really good concept, um, and why the South African case is such an important thing because. There is no justifying genocide. And if you're acting in self-defense, you still aren't allowed to commit genocide. Uh, it's, you know, um, and I, I think historically um, almost all genocides have been couched in terms of self-defense as well. So it means nothing to say um, we're defending ourselves. What was your response when South Africa actually put this application forward? Because I think very, like... You know, we kind of saw it coming down the pipeline, right, uh, with Security mm-hmm. Council veto from the US and then the um, General Assembly uh, vote. And then South Africa had been making claims within the UN um, about the genocidal nature of Israel's actions in Gaza and then made this application. And I remember thinking a lot of people are going to pin too much on this as far as reality goes. If this is already a genocide. It doesn't like the court ruling is important in terms of international law and how the institutions choose to deliberate or deliver on this. But in the end, it it helps, but it isn't necessary to mm. determine whether or not a genocide is taking place. Essentially, right? Uh, well, yeah, actually, <laughs> I had because you know, I, well, I think we. We have lived ever since World War II in an age of genocide denial. Um, and uh, for me, it was actually quite thrilling Thrilling because I can see coming through this process, I've, I've actually often <laughs> cursed the, the genocide convention because it creates this sort of crime and the crime blinds people to the 
the actuality. But I could see this is the beginning of a process where people learn what genocide is mm -hmm. and stop tolerating it, even if it's done by the US or the UK and so forth. Because it, it, there really is never a moral defense for, for genocide. It's just simply impossible to say you 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 have right on your side. Uh, as, as if you actually believe that uh, people are equal. So yeah, so I was um, I was very happy to see that, and um, you know I'm not I, <laughs> I haven't you know been you know like I'm not a law expert, but what I see coming out what I've seen coming out of the ad hoc you know the ICTR and the ICTY and the ICC has kind of depressed me as someone, um, you know, understanding that you know, from a different perspective, a non-legal perspective, um, because it plays into this idea of intentionality as a subjective idea of intentionality, that genocide comes from the minds of these particular demonic, hateful persons who froth at the mouth and, you know, uh, send out their millions and minions to... to commit all these evil acts when, when, you know, it's, it can be very banal and it's a very, you know, um, the nature of genocide is that it is the, uh, the guy who coined the term, Raphael Lemkin, said it was a co coordinated plan of actions, you know, it, and these are disparate things that come together. And he was talking about things like little laws as well as big acts of violence, and how they all meld together. And so genocides are not something that is just enacted by a handful of nasty people. Genocides such as the one going on in Gaza are actually enacted by millions of people, all working towards this one horrific outcome. And in this case, it's not, you know, just people in Israel either, right? No, absolutely not. <laughs> like any armed manufacturer who's supplying those weapons could, could yeah. cut off the tap. Uh, the US could yeah. cut off funding and support. They could move their, their aircraft carrier, you know, out of mm -hmm. the area. They could stop attacking Yemen and um, and Syria mm -hmm. and providing cover for Israel having to fight a war on multiple fronts, which would enable resistance to a greater degree by the Palestinian people. Yeah, um, yes. Um, and also, you know, equally, media people could stop <laughs> enabling this by, um, by a certain sort of coverage that, uh, you know, lends itself to this. I mean, they, you know, at Nuremberg, they tried and punished people for work in the media. So, uh, <laughs> You know, this is this is the the equivalent, really. And this is why there are things like the accountability archive that have been set up, right, to keep track of different media organisations, politicians, uh, people appearing on live streams who are saying these things, who are, who are clearly complicit in genocide um, yeah. and genocide denial, which is a form of complicity. Uh, yeah. And because there is going to be a reckoning at some point, uh, and all the people who have organised to communicate cover for Israel. I, I do hope so. But, you know, like Judith Butler is still kicking around, um, you know, I mean, um, and the New York Times is, you know, they, they run ran those um, poorly sourced claims about sexual violence that have been a key um, thing in motivating this, you know, and, you know, we, we do this 
every time, whether it's uh, it's Gaddafi handing out Viagra to his troops or throwing babies out of incubators in Kuwait, you know, these lies keep coming up and these people still prosper for being bad at their ostensible job but being good at their real job. (laughs) Which is horrible to think about. Oh, yeah. But you're right. It is, uh, you know, like we're going to have 3,000 people um, in our mentions calling us conspiracy theorists for daring to suggest uh, that the institutions of the West uh, provide cover for the political decisions of the West. But it's clearly just the case. Like every one of these things comes out and is immediately debunked and people will still be saying it three weeks later. Yeah. Uh, Well, I mean, has any society ever existed before that isn't biased in its own favour. I mean, it's weird that we in the West seem to think that, like, somehow we're immune to that. Um, I think that, you know, I, I think, you know, some people understand that, well, all governments lie. Um, but you, you, you sometimes think people lose fight. I think, like, this is one of those moments in history, though, right, where it's a lot clearer. Mm. Um, and people in general are seeing what's happening in Gaza and saying, not in my fucking name. Mm. Um, there I was saying at the beginning of the podcast, we went live, I was going to try and tone it down a bit, but <laughs> I, I think it deserves it sometimes. We're in this situation, you know, you, you were mentioning this, um, this intent kind of part of the genocide convention. Well, maybe I should just go back a bit and explain how the concept of genocide came about anyway, um, because that all um, kind of set up for the, the convention and how it maybe doesn't reflect that particularly well in some ways. Uh, so, you know, the creator of the term, uh, uh, Raphael Lemkin, was a Polish Jew born at the turn of the 20th century. Um, he was from a poor farming family. He went to trade school and did exceptionally well and then went to university to study law in Lemberg, which is now Lviv in uh, Western Ukraine. Now, um, the thing about him was that obviously as a a Jewish person, he was living in Eastern Europe. He was quite aware of pogroms and stuff. And he was 15 when the Armenian genocide happened, and it made a massive impression on him. He was also deeply fascinated with history in general. So in 1933, he was working as a prosecutor, And he went to an international conference and he put forward the idea that there should be two international crimes. In fact, he really kind of initiated the idea that you you should have some sort of extra sovereign right to intervene in other states, which um, I think is a little bit unfortunate. But anyway, (laughs) the the concepts of these crimes were one, uh, one was vandalism and one was barbarism. And vandalism was attacking the kind of cultural aspects of a people for because they were that people, you know, targeting them much as genocide. And barbarism was attacking them physically. So uh, for being who they are, basically. So it's kind of a kernel of what would become genocide. And then World War II happens. He very narrowly escapes uh, getting caught by the Germans, manages to get into, um, into Sweden and takes up a university post in Stockholm and starts investigating the way the Germans are running Europe, the occupied territories. Um, And then he moves to uh, the US, uh, starts teaching at Duke University there. And then 
1944, he publishes a book called Axis Rule in Occupied Europe, which I've personally only read one chapter of, a short chapter in it, because that's the relevant bit. Um, I gather the other stuff is pretty dry. Uh, I don't know. I don't know from personal experience, but there is one chapter on which he, in which he covers genocide and uses the term. And in that chapter, he uh, cites um, what the Axis powers were doing with various people, particularly, I mean, basically the Germans. We might as well just say the Germans. Um, they and um, you know, in lots of things from encouraging people to change their names to a more Germanic form. You know, in places like Luxembourg and so forth. So that's the kind of smaller rule that you're talking about earlier. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like some stuff that's quite petty, but he covers a lot of different ethnicities. And then you get you get into heavier stuff like obviously mass murder, but also um, like uh, the provision of, um, of uh, calories, you know, rationing. And so forth. And um, although Jewish, if you know the, the main go-to example he uses isn't the Jewish people, uh, possibly I, I think because in fact you know he probably I think he was well aware that the Germans were simply trying to exterminate them, so it wasn't maybe as complex uh, an example. Uh, the, the example he uses most often as an illustration is the Polish. And basically what he said was that genocide is war against people. So military warfare is when you send your <laughs> sovereign, say, you know, a, a, a monarch, sends their generals out with their troops to go and kill the other person's troops. And then that way, once you've done that, you can tell that other sovereign, you do what I want. You know, um, if you've ever read Clausewitz's On War, I, I like to say that's kind of the epitome in, um, of, of you know, what he's talking about is military warfare. He cites the Russo-Portalis doctrine, which is basically a, a sort of prohibition against attacking civilians as being that sort of warfare. And genocide is the warfare against the people. And if you think about the way warfare has been going since World War II, and you can just check the casualty rates um, in these wars, um, they quite often seem to lean quite heavily towards killing the civilians rather than the soldiers. Um, so, And then uh, after World War II, he campaigns with um, a lot of help from other people, including Eleanor Roosevelt, to get um, the convention passed. You know, he's a lawyer. He wants a crime. <laughs> I think there are, you know, like I say, I think there's some bad consequences of that, but that's what he wanted. And um, the world decides to go along with that, very much probably focused on the Shah, the Juda Judea side, the, you know, killing of Europe's Jews rather than having read his book or anything like that. And um, then um, I think what happened to him afterwards is quite instructive because he decided to keep writing about genocide and he wrote about the genocide of the indigenous people in his new adopted home of the United States. And it Interesting how that's never down mentioned, down is it? Think in 19, early 1950s US. He said that the reservations were a form of concentration camp. And... Uh, then he died quite young, and six people went to his funeral, and that's pretty much how um, how well respected he was at the time. So, yeah, 
Well, but you know, he started writing about all sorts of historical genocides, and his he saw them in very broad terms, not building um, giant gas chambers and, and that sort of thing. He's he, you know <laughs> had a much broader understanding. Yeah, and certainly it sounds like his uh, later work somewhat went beyond even the legal conventions that he helped to establish. Yeah, well, yes. Well, the thing is with the Genocide Convention, of course, read literally, it could be applied to almost any any violence or act of harm carried out, motivated by um, by someone else's, um, any sort of animus towards someone else because of their identity, right? Um, so... Um, yeah, so in a way, it's he the the, re, the received version of it became very narrow, but it didn't narrow because of what's written in the right. convention. It narrowed because they focused on the fact that the acts involved in themselves aren't the crime. The crime is doing those acts with a specific intention. Yes, dollar specialis, right? Now, of course, if you look at the way Lemkin wrote that, and, and this was one of the things that made me get very excited when South Africa presented its case, it's very clear from this idea that it's, um, you know, like a, 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 a conjoined complex arrangement of things happening towards a single end, right, that the intent is actually in that in itself, right? And that is one of the things, the very first, uh, 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 I've forgotten the names of the uh, the um, lawyers that, presented the, the South African case, but the very first, um, she wasn't direct, uh, she wasn't uh, discussing intentionality, but she she did bring that up and I was just so happy. Um, and um, yeah, so, I mean, if you keep doing things and they keep affecting a particular people, that is, you know, I mean, you can't statistically accidentally just take, you know, like do these things to one people and not have any intention to do that, do it to those people. Yeah, the proof is in the actions themselves. You don't need to necessarily prove intent. Although within the, um, you know, within the convention, you do need to prove intent as well. Um, And South Africa included an entire section with where they presented evidence of Israeli leadership, uh, both political and military, uh, making genocidal statements. Um, that could either be seen as incitement or direction. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Uh, it, it, you know, it's they can definitely be seen as incitement to genocide, and that is in itself prohibited. Um, the thing is, if you're talking about intentionality and linking that with what the um, Israeli military forces are doing, the problem is that um, Israel has a very easy defence there, and that they can say, well, that's a politician. That politician is not ordering troops on the ground. The troops are doing what they do in order to try and carry out our self-defense plan. And all of the violence against civilians is happening because of Hamas or Hamas, sorry, (laughs) Um, hiding in tunnels and using human shields and, you know. Which is what they've been saying since um, October, right? This is like... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is the the core of their defence, is that they are engaging in a legitimate military activity um, of self-defence, which obviously, that isn't true because they're an occupier. They they don't... They've got a right to self-defence, no. Yeah, yeah. So they can't... 
act in self-defense, not militarily, until they end the occupation. And then, like, of course, can. But the first step to ending the occupation, uh, to to defending yourself, is in the occupation first. Then, but um, yeah, so they don't have that right. But um, also, you you cannot <laughs> cannot commit genocide as self-defense. So really, the defense relies on this idea of the nature of the warfare. Yeah. Is the reason that these things are occurring, and that and it's a byproduct rather than an, an action with intent. And this is where um, I think that sometimes, like you know, the intentionality argument gets becomes a get out of jail free card. At least for the some of the millions who are involved, if not the initial leadership, right? And we're talking yeah. about this a little bit before the cast. Yeah, uh, yeah. one of the risks here is that. Yes, some people are going to get charged with genocide or attempted genocide um, from mm. among the Israeli leadership, and everyone else is going to be let off the hook um, yeah. post yeah. post hoc, like after it's already happened. And do you think that would you call that a a direct? If that would happen, would you say it's a direct result of the way that the Gen- uh, genocide convention is set up and the ICJ is set up? Like, is that uh, an intended consequence almost? Well, again, like this this idea of criminality, you know, is um, problematic in this um, thing. We, we, you know, it used to be that people believed in retribution, but in some ways we've become even more mindless about it now because I think because of the television and the constant cop shows and court shows, people have this kind of magical belief that if you prosecute people, it somehow wipes out, you know, it's like it resurrects the victims or something like that. And there's a very strong current in the prevent genocide discourse, genocide prevention discourse, that is about this punitive thing. And, of course, you know, who who do they punish? Well, we know what the ICC does. It, it grabs African people and... <laughs> Punishes them, you know. It's basically what it does, and often in doing so, they take away incentives for um, peacemaking. You know, like Charles Taylor, for example. Like <laughs> he might have done some horrible things. I, I don't know. I, you know, I'm pretty sure he did, but you know, uh, <laughs> that's not for me to to judge. But the thing is that he um, he stepped down from power, went into exile, and peace came about and then they went and nabbed him and sent him off to court so the next one next person who's facing that they're not going to end the war so i think it's uh, the criminality part can be very counterproductive absolutely and we've seen some of that play out in parliament today when james shaw leader of the co-leader of the green party was trying to pin christopher luxon the prime minister and leader of the national party uh, with some of the ICJ rulings around prevention of genocide and mm-hmm. our obligations under the Genocide Convention to prevent genocide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Luxon's answer on multiple occasions was the ICJ did not find that they were committing genocidal acts. Yes. Which it's, is... it's very interesting. I, by that logic, you can go and rob a bank and say it's not a crime until a jury has convicted me of it. So I'm allowed to do it. Um, (laughs) This is the whole point of a provisional ruling. It's to prevent prejudicial action. And if New Zealand, um, like, uh, acts in ways not to prevent potential genocide, right, which we 
we should have been doing as signatories before the court ever said anything, but certainly after the court has said something, we have to, we are obliged to act to stop any potential genocide. And then, like, if it's ruled not a genocide, then you go, oh, dear, we accidentally, you know, <laughs> I mean, there is... We accidentally try to prevent no, a genocide. For it, you know what I mean? um, whereas the other way around, it's too late. And that's the whole point of this provisional ruling, is to stop something that cannot be undone. And it already can't, can't be undone, right? Like, there are yeah. oh, uh, getting towards 30,000 deaths now. Yeah. Um, it's probably much larger than that because we don't have numbers anymore as well yeah. as people trapped under the rubble and it's on the way to being much more not on the basis of people getting bombed but yeah. just dying to diseases of overcrowding poverty um, and starvation and thirst yes well history has proven that that's a very effective way of getting away with uh, murdering a lot of people so yeah um there is uh yeah, people tend to ignore the results of starvation despite... Um, I wish people understood how cruel a, a death it is to die of starvation. Um, you know, it is physically incredibly painful. People often go completely insane. And, you know, to watch your ch you know, children are so much more vulnerable to it than uh, uh, adults. Yeah, it's, it's horrific. And... It's, yeah. you know, a part of the issue with focusing, not that we shouldn't focus on it to some degree, but it's definitely where the discourse is being competed is the bombings, the indiscriminate bombing of civilians. Mm. Um, that's not the major risk as far as a genocide goes here. It is the displacement and uh, lack of ability to live. Yeah. Now, I, I didn't make clear earlier, um, uh, um, and maybe I should, that like Lincoln used, created a term genocide that sounds like it is um, meant to reflect something like homicide. But right in, in his first paragraph, something he says, it does not necessarily mean extermination. You have to understand that. It's not. You know, I, personally, I believe that all genocides contain an exterminatory logic if they're allowed to go on long enough. And you can see this, and, and actually the relations, Israel-Palestine, the relations are that like Israel keeps wanting control more and more and more to the point where simply the normal resistance of breathing, of being alive and trying to look after your family and so forth becomes intolerable. And so it leans ever more towards the logic of extermination. Um, and, you know, and we can see how that is, is going. Um, yeah. I don't know about you, but I did not expect the violence uh, to be so protracted as it is. You know, it has overshadowed uh, previous attacks on Gaza by such an enormous amount. I just couldn't. Well, this is why um, people are focusing on it, right? Because it's... Yeah. This is like un almost unheard of in the modern age. Yeah. Uh, um, absolutely. In terms of, you know, I'm actually I'm really comfortable saying they're targeting civilians. Like it's, it's clearly what they are doing. Even if you know the wider discourse shies away from that, there's never been this ratio like a ratio like this. Not even close of civilian X military deaths. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, I actually to to me it, it doesn't seem too dissimilar to Iraq. 
You mean um, that post-war? Yeah. So yes, particularly the post-war, but even even while the Iraqi military were around, they were trying not to fight the U.S. and the yeah. U.S. was um, was you know refusing to accept surrender and so forth. And I, I think that's indicative of a, of a genocidal nature, anyway. But um, I, you know, obviously in Iraq, it it wasn't as concentrated in you know in area or time, you know, that what the people of not everyone is subject subjected to trauma every day in Gaza, obviously, but like what some people are going through, it leaves behind the, you know, you'd have to look to like Stalingrad or Leningrad for anyone having been through experiences like that in the past. Uh, certainly far worse than people experienced in World War One. And so forth. Um, and you know, I mean, obviously there are all different ways of suffering, and I'm not gonna I'm not trying to say that, you know, um ignore how horrific like uh, the Warsaw ghetto or um you know um the concentration camps and the death camps and all of that sort of thing were you know that also everything is bad. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, all of this horrible violence is bad. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Were there yeah. any other points you wanted to touch on more generally around genocide before we move on to the ICJ interim order? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, no, I, I I don't think so. But, I mean, I just feel that, like, this could be the start of a process where, you know, if, for me, um, the uh, the nature of targeting civilians is um, has been for a long time, um, you know, like, when... Like literally, when the US ratified the um, genocide convention in 1950, it was committing genocide by bombing uh, North Korean civilians. Um, and we have had this going on for such a long time. And for me, opening this out, this such it's such an it's there for everyone to see, and it may lead to a world where we uh, do not tolerate genocide. Yeah. And the oh, yeah. the counterfactual is horrible. Yes, yeah, and I think there are forces really wanting to establish that to create a precedent. And um yeah, that is would be really bad. It would be. Uh and I guess in light of that, um, you know, when the International Court of Justice was was ruling on this, one of our considerations was is this a a last opportunity? For you know, broadly the international rules-based order to actually assert itself, because yeah. the, the the coalition of Western supporters of Israel's genocide in Gaza is among the most powerful. I mean, the US obviously, uh, but yeah. as well as that, you know, countries like UK and Germany, Canada, yeah. Australia, uh, among the most powerful in the world, um, and especially under the US hegemony, um, the, the United States is far and away uh, the most. Uh, powerful on almost every metric and if this is ignored um, if this is not able to be prosecuted i guess or have an impact on what's happening there i don't i don't i don't know what the outcome of that is honestly it, it is it is a first step i don't know it is a, an important step it is a significant step uh in the way that international sovereign states interact with each other on the international stage 
under any kind of order whatsoever. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, in a way, um, both Israel and the US have, uh, particularly the US, have been kind of trying to make themselves immune for a long time and and to make it known to people, to rub people's faces in it. So obviously there was the, uh, there was a ruling at the ICJ in a case between the United States and Nicaragua. And, um, you know, the ICJ said you got to stop mining their harbours, you have to stop funding their contras, and you have to give them compensation. Because, um, you know, they mined the harbours and didn't tell international shipping, so they're blowing up other people's ships as well. Um, <laughs> anyway, and then, you know, and the, the US basically said, nah, we don't care. And then they said, you don't have jurisdiction over us. And then, uh, then of course, it ended up at the Security Council, and they vetoed it, and then it ended up at the General Assembly, and they, kept, they voted a couple of times trying to enforce it, but the US just ignored it. Um, and then, of course, they, they pulled out of the ICC and um, passed the the act that um, people like to call the Hague Invasion Act, where, where they say that they will take military action against anyone who tries to take, you know, take one of their personnel or politicians to court over these sort of things. And um, and that didn't stop them from telling the ICC that they needed to go and press charges against Kenyatta, wasn't it, I think, in Kenya, like when they felt that he should be brought up before this court that they refuse to recognise for themselves but still get to tell them what to do. So, you know, the US has been trying to create its um, immunity from, its impunity for a long time. And by and large has succeeded. I I want to be clear about that. Absolutely, yeah. And And then, you know, and of course, I mean, this is what's happening now is almost the apotheosis of uh, Israel's anti-UN discourse that has been building for a long time. And especially in the last week. Yeah, yeah. I mean, UNRWA is Hamas. Well, sorry, I'm not pronouncing it correctly. Hamas, yeah. Um, but you know, um, it, you know, for from a Zionist perspective, the UN keeps going after them, and other bad things are happening in the world. But there is a reason for that. Um, the, the UN, the UN was involved from the beginning, the very beginning, with the you know the partition plan, and then. Um, passed Resolution 194, which um, said that all, um, this is General Assembly Resolution 194, it said that all Palestinian refugees must be allowed to return, and if they didn't want to, they had to be paid compensation. And they also, and then they only admitted, they voted only to recognise Israel as a state if it complied with 194 and the resolution, the partition resolution, which was, I, I don't, can't remember, 86 or something. No, probably not. Some some other number. Um, anyway, so, you know, and it never did either of those and has since gone on to annex bits of other people's countries and so forth and do things that are not considered acceptable under law, but still, you know, Donald Trump will come along and give it the thumbs up. And and now Joe Biden. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, once Donald Trump's done it, you know, of course, you know, yeah, uh, it's... Yeah, weird watching them play their funny games over there. Thinking, yeah. of, I mean, I'm not saying that if I lived there, I wouldn't have an opinion one way or the other. But it's no, it it's, is a silly system. So we're at the point now where South Africa made this application almost a month ago, I think, mm-hmm. uh, and 
part of the application was to ask for uh, interim orders because of the urgency um, mm. of the situation owing to prejudicial actions, which basically means like if an earlier order isn't made because there is an understanding that the ICJ can take years to make mm. a full ruling on whether or not a genocide has taken place um, or might take place, they need to go through all the evidence painstakingly. This is a, a huge process here. So South Africa asked that interim orders be made in a preventative sense to ensure that if there is if if a genocide if genocidal actions are, are plausible in this case if there's a if there is a chance that a genocide is taking place or is going to take place uh that Israel and other countries that are subject to the genocide convention who have ratified it would be ordered to prevent that from happening mm. um, and this comes back to what you were saying Karen around uh, the fact that if you're not doing that, there's no way back from it. Um, you know, if thousands yeah. of people are dying, uh, you cannot bring them back to life in four years when you decide actually, yeah, it was a genocide. Mm. Uh, so these interim orders were asked for uh, in order to provide impetus or a, a legal basis for intervention. And mm. I, I think that I think that's a fair reading in the case that the actions that Israel were undertaking were plausibly genocidal in nature. Mm -hmm. uh, and I like to quickly summarize, um, and anyone listening to our podcast regularly or, you know, following this uh, along from a perspective that isn't really bad um, and, and lying to itself continuously, yeah. the, the outcome of the application um, and the interim orders was that Israel is plausibly undertaking uh, genocidal actions and that people in the international community and Israel itself should act to prevent that. Would you say that's a fair reading? Yes. Um, yes. And, oh. mm. I know you have I one mean, point of um, contention. Yeah. So it's that, that inch be that becomes a thousand miles. Um, yeah. Um, but yes. Yeah. I, I think that is a plausible reading but with wiggle room for uh, political manoeuvring, unfortunately. Well, and which has been what has occurred. Now, the bad faith response to this, and it's, you know, it's been the, ma the main focus and content of propaganda, and, you know, there's no other word for it, really, in the Israeli and Western response. And I'm just mm -hmm. going to flatly call it the Western response, um, mm -hmm. even if the people of the West uh, don't necessarily agree with the political leadership. Sorry, yeah. they're acting in your name. Oops, yeah. has been to make two claims. One is uh, that the ICJ did not find uh, that Israel was committing genocide, which is ludicrous because that's what happens at the end of the entire process. Um, and the other one is, well, if it was so bad, then why haven't they ordered a ceasefire? Now, I know you have something to say about that. Oh well, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, as, as we were talking about before, you know, like, um, well, ceasefire is a, a like a magic word to these people, and um, <laughs> so obviously there are technical reasons why they couldn't order a ceasefire using that word. But um, the thing is that the only there is no real danger of. I mean, Israel's claiming a right to self-defense, but. Um, and, you know, the court can't prejudicially kind of dismiss their defence, but there is no real danger of um, things happening that cannot be undone 
if the court had ordered an immediate end to military operation, operations in Gaza. Like, it's not like Hamas is going to, you know, commit it, you know, uh, to another um, October the 7th, like, not unless the Israelis actively let them. Again, you know? I just want to be like, it's, it's, it's coming clearer and clearer. But yeah, it's, yeah, again, yes, again. Um, I, I just, a bit of an aside, I saw on, I think it was Democracy Now!, they're talking about how the um, observation post um, soldiers were saying, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and they were told, stop reporting this or you will be prosecuted. And democracy now's um, explanation for why that happened was because of sexism, <laughs> because they were women. Wow. And I thought, mm, okay, <laughs> I think there might have been another reason. Yeah, it could have possibly happened, been but, uh, other things going on there. Yeah, but yes, um, it, it, the events of that day are yeah quite interesting. So. I want to, and just for our audience, um, who may not have been able to interact with this yet, I want us now to just kind of, at, at lightning pace, attempt to go yep. through the the order um, of 26th yep. of January 2024 of the application of the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide in the Gaza Strip, South Africa versus Israel, to the International Court of Justice. Uh, it is about 28 or 29 pages long, uh, so we're not going to be going into uh, great detail. I won't be reading the entire thing out, but I will be reading parts of it as we go. And we'll probably have some asides and we'll, we'll dip into some language and some interpretation around it. Because I think it's important to have a record of exactly what this is. And the case it lays out and the deliberations it makes... It is very, very hard to argue against them if you are the side of Israel and the US. And like incredibly hard. Like I don't think even people who are broadly like on the side of the Palestinians, um, you know, on the side of humanity in this case, um, you may not realize, given the way this has been covered, just how cut and dried this gets and how far from it US spokespeople have to get. Um, or, you know, the New Zealand Prime Minister um, and his coalition partners have to get uh, in order to claim that New Zealand does not have an obligation to act. Anyone, like, um, I would recommend watching um, the South African case Mm -hmm. um, because um, for a court proceeding, it is um, really gripping, I I don't think. And and if you want to see how not gripping a court proceeding could be, then you can watch the Israeli case as well, which is which found very, very difficult to watch. It was a joke. They, they were not serious well, about it. Was it. A joke, but it was also very, like, you know, it was quite dull. They did not get in their top lawyers. No. No. Um, mm. Because they don't, they don't have to try, uh, essentially, and, you know, that's being proven correct. Uh, so we'll go through this bit by bit. I will put a link to this in the summary so you could pull it up. Um, and you could you could check that we are actually looking at the same document because I do think it's important if you've got the time to to go through some of these things. This is one of the most important moments of history that I have been alive for, and that means it is probably the same for a lot of people listening to this. Yeah, um, point. It, it, it has the potential to be. So we start with the cover page, uh, table of contents. It gives the the judges present, um, the people who are prosecuting and defending the case. Um, and now it goes into detail, first of all, on the application itself, which 
I won't spend too much time on, I don't think. Uh, I, I do think it is worth going to watch. Um, and a lot of those details are more in the public sphere now. You probably would have seen, uh, for example, the South African examples uh, given around intent, which uh, quotes from uh, people like Netanyahu, like uh, Isaac Herzog, like uh, Joav Letan, the Minister of Defence, uh, where they're saying things like, there's going to be no electricity and water in Gaza. Everyone's going to be gone. They all have to leave. Very clear statements of this sort, uh, alongside a number of even worse ones uh, from people who are further from seat, the seats of power. Um, is it worth mentioning the composition of the court? No, yeah, get, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's just, a, it's really, I mean, it is a little bit stacked in terms of nations and their allegiances, then I'm not suggesting, of course, that uh, judges were anything but uh, totally impartial, but um, because it has Uganda, it has the US, it has um, uh, uh, Japan, uh, India is now pretty much, you know, pro-Israel and uh, uh, Australia. Yeah, so um, it has a disproportionate number of countries that are pro-Israel in it. Um, Whether the judges are or not. doesn't mean that the judges are, but yeah. yes. And this was certainly part of the discourse going in, right? Uh, And I think we mentioned this on the weekend podcast as well. People were counting the votes. um, And one of our co-hosts, Simon, was like, sorry, these guys are nerds. Um, Like the people who are judges are are total nerds for international law. Yeah, Countries can pressure their judges, and I do want to be very clear about that. but they also, you know, they do want to uphold what they do. Yeah, yeah. And I think I more or less did. There's also uh, both an Israeli and a South African uh, judge on there because they are the, the countries who are in opposition over this. Uh, so it goes into detail about the nature of the claim and down on point five, uh, it gives, and I will read uh, some of these out, Uh, It says, at the end of its request, South Africa asked the court to indicate the following provisional measures. So this is the provisional measures um, part of the application that we were talking about earlier. Number one was the state of uh, Israel shall immediately suspend its military operations in and against Gaza. Then uh, Israel shall ensure that uh, both military and irregular units, uh, which may be directed or supported by it, um, as well as any organizations and persons, take no steps in furtherance of military operations. So this, that's a, between the two of those, it's a pretty broad attempt to stop military operations uh, by Israel and uh, associated groups uh, within Gaza itself. In accordance with the obligations, uh, both states, so South Africa and Israel, should take all uh, reasonable measures within their power to prevent genocide. So this is a call out to the Genocide Convention itself, all countries who are uh, members of the Genocide Convention are required to try and prevent genocide. So this shouldn't need to be (laughs) said as an interim order, uh, but so it goes. Number four, and this is where, this is one of the bigger ones, and it talks about the different parts uh, of of what genocide means. Um, And I think a lot of the interim orders that the court did end up um, coming out with uh, came from this. The state of Israel shall, in accordance with its obligations under the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, in relation to the Palestinian people as a group protected by the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, 
desist from the commission of any and all acts within the scope of Article 2 of the Convention, in particular, A, killing members of the group, B, causing serious bodily or mental harm to the members of the group, C, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, and D, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. Now, this speaks to what you were saying earlier around some of Lemkin's definitions, Karen. Yeah. So this is four out of the five um, actions that are prohibited under the uh, Genocide Convention. Uh, The other one is uh, transferring children. Um, So, yeah. um, Yeah. So, um, you know, this is like meant to reflect this idea of a a multi-pronged approach that is an attack on a people for who they are, a people as such. Then uh, further, there is a an order around uh, Israel not creating conditions that lead to these outcomes. Uh, so this is around uh, kind of ethnic cleansing stuff, so displacement and deprivation of uh, the necessities of life. Um, and a really key part of this as well is uh, around cultural, I guess, determinants, uh, which is there should be um, no destruction of Palestinian life in Gaza. Um, And that is turning out to be a really key one as well. The sixth one, there are nine of these in all. These are the the nine interim orders. The sixth one is around the, I guess, the intent uh, clauses. Uh, And so it is about punishing or stopping people from uh, direction or incitement to commit genocide. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is saying Israel has a um, obligation under the convention to prosecute people uh, within its civil society who are doing this. Now, there'll be some interesting stuff around that in terms of the votes, I believe, Karen. Yes, absolutely. Right, once we look at those interim orders. Yeah. Another really big one, um, and this one's important because it's about the ruling to come um, in the next few years as the ICJ investigates this case. Uh, and so number seven is uh, Israel should take effective measures to prevent the destruction and ensure the pr- preservation of evidence related to allegations of acts within the scope of Article 2 of the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. And wow, like I, you, you're reading through these, right? Uh, and it's like a checklist of things that Israel is doing. It's it's actually horrific. And this is what I, you know, I was tweeting earlier today, like anyone who is arguing against this case or arguing that Israel is not committing or trying to commit a genocide should be required to go through this line by line and rebut every single point before they should even be listened to. Well, I think the other thing to remember is that uh, both the South African case and this uh, ruling, um, they draw all of the evidence from UN reporting bodies. Yeah. You know, and Israeli media. Well, yeah, true, true. But, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's condemned by their own bodies. And, of course, yeah, it's very authoritative. It is. Um, and yeah. incredibly, like, there's a lot of evidence and Israel's creating more evidence every day. And yeah. some of that creation of evidence is in very public destruction of evidence. Yeah. Uh, like, I am I think we see yeah. a bulldo- bulldozers mowing over bodies uh, new story at, or like report at least once a week. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other thing is that they're often actually admitting to crimes in a way that they think is a defense. 
So they're quite often confessing that they're committing collective punishment. Um, <laughs> you know, they say, if you know, like, if they don't want us to bomb them, then Hamas has to stop firing rockets. And it's like, wait a second, you're not, you know, you're bombing people. That is against the law, and you're saying that it's yeah, yeah, you're doing a genocide. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Number mm. eight is that, and this is more administrative. Um, again, in regards to the investigation by the court itself, mm. uh, which is the state of Israel shall submit a report to the court on all measures taken to give effect to this order within one week, as from the date of this order. So this order was on the twenty sixth of January. Turns out we're pretty close today to that uh, potential order and the state of Israel shall refrain from any action and shall ensure that no action is taken which might aggravate or extend the dispute before the court or make it more difficult to resolve. So this is a please don't fuck around with court procedures, Israel. So the the back half of that is admin heavy. Now, and the, yeah, I, I don't want to anticipate, but the, the court actually, you know, didn't go with a week. It went with a, a month. month. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So we're looking at uh, around the end of February, um, February 26-ish. Mm. Now we have a little bit more admin stuff uh, in the next few pages uh, talking about how the court processed the application. Mm-hmm. It gives the list of... Uh, representatives on behalf of South Africa and on behalf of Israel. There is a list of uh, the provisional measures now, which are broadly taken from those earlier measures uh, that we noted. And then we get into the introduction. So this was all preamble. Now, one thing that's really interesting about this and I think is silly uh, is that both the court and South Africa fully accept the Israeli and Western framing of October 7th in terms of what took place, who killed who, and, you know, this this idea around the hostages. Now, again, not, not going to, we're not here to, to relitigate that, but I do think it's important to note that they've accepted that framing and gone on to make the decisions they made anyway. And, it, you know, that framing is being, is being exploited. Um, you know, as I um, said before, we broadcast the State Department and and the US is basically saying that the court didn't uh, call for a ceasefire, but it did say that Hamas has to unconditionally hand back the uh, the hostages, which of course was not the matter before. What <laughs> is pretty weird, yeah. to um, do that, and yeah, it's not a good sign. No. And then goes on uh, to discuss the ongoing conflict in Gaza and with reference to the different resolutions that have been made uh, within the United Nations during the course of it uh, since the 7th of October. And some of those play into uh, the deliberations. Following that, uh, we've got these preliminary observations. This is on page eight for those following along. And it's telling us why and how it's allowed to make these claims, essentially. And I think uh, just in terms of deliberations, this is one of the first uh, more important things to note. And that is the court must therefore uh, determine whether those provisions prima facie uh, confer upon it jurisdiction to rule on the merits of the case, enabling it, if the other necessary conditions are fulfilled, to indicate provisional measures. Now, this mm-hmm. is important because... First of all, Israel tried to sort of get get the claim thrown out on technicalities. And secondly, so prima facie means just in lay terms on the face of it. So 
the evidence as in front of us, what it says for itself without further investigation, essentially. Yeah. I mean, it's even just the appearance that something needs to be investigated, really, Um, that there's a question mark even. Yeah. Uh, And so it looks at that first. Um, Are these, are we able to hear this case? And they decide, yes, we are. Uh, Both South Africa and Israel are parties to the Genocide Convention. Um, And then in the following section, they go through that in a little more depth, again, with a lot of references uh, to past rulings. Then it gives South Africa's reasoning as to why it is allowed to bring this case. I'm I'm skipping through large chunks here because yeah. they, this is these are the yeah, no, is, yeah. the important facts, and I want to get to the deliberation and the ruling. Um, and this is all essentially preamble. Um, but I'll touch on a couple of things throughout this, uh, which are important in terms of the way that uh, the discourse has tried to be shaped. So we reached one of those now under point twenty three on page ten. Uh, Israel contends that South Africa has failed to demonstrate the prima facie jurisdiction of the court uh, mm. under under the Article of the Genocide Convention. And when you saw this played in the news when Israel was first trying to use this technicality to have the case thrown out. It argued that they didn't have a dispute because South Africa hadn't really talked to it properly. Like they hadn't really they hadn't really like had a chat. Mm. But in the following sections, the court assesses that South Africa's statements. Uh, at the UN and Israel's um, statements thereof constituted uh, grounds for a dispute between the two entities. Yeah, and uh, it, it almost reads like a bit of a deadpan clapback there because you know they, they play out but yeah, come Israel's on. case. I mean, it's kind of like and <laughs> yeah, but yes, I, I'm sure that's unintentional, but that's kind of like... <laughs> no, you fools, you are you are the fools. Of course, we're going to hear this. What do you mean they yeah. had to respond to your letter specifically and get in a room with you? Like, no, that's not how international law works. Please stop. And but there's and there are a couple of pages uh, going through and mm. like they take the the ICJ takes that claim uh, by Israel very seriously and responds to yeah. it seriously and says why yeah. um, it is not the case and why they are they do have jurisdiction to hear the case. Now we're up to uh, subheading three on page twelve following that decision. Um, and this is a conclusion as to prima facie jurisdiction. And they yeah, basically conclude, yes, we're hearing the case and we'll go from there. Now we have the standing of South Africa. So this is what South Africa put forward uh, to the International Criminal Court uh, or International Court of Justice as its evidence. Now, it goes into some detail around the different provisional measures that are being asked for and how they relate uh, to different articles of the statute for prevention of genocide. It's, again, there's a lot here. I don't blame anyone for not having gone to read this. And this is, again, this is why we're doing, we're trying to to fit it all into a podcast um, and skipping over bits so that uh, yeah. at least there's, you can get some grounding um, in, in terms of what these, these things are. Now, on point 36... Uh, They note, and this is important in terms of provisional declarations, uh, at this stage of the proceedings, however, the court is not called upon to determine definitively whether the rights which South Africa wishes to see protected exist, 
and need only decide whether the rights claimed by South Africa and for which it is seeking protection are plausible. Uh, so this is in relation to any interim orders that are going to be made. Moreover, a link must exist between the rights whose protection is sought uh, and the provisional measures being requested. So this is protection under the Genocide Convention and the provisional measures that will attempt to enforce that protection, essentially, or that are tied back to the protection that the Genocide Convention is meant to give to groups of people who are being genocided. Uh, now, South Africa argues that it seeks to protect the rights of Palestinians in Gaza, and Israel kind of makes a statement that it needs to be considered in the context, but kind of at the end of all of that, and there's a bit of a, a back and forth again with a lot of reference to uh, what you were saying, Karen, around UN bodies uh, being on the ground there and, and reporting on what was happening to Palestinians in Gaza, they come to the conclusion, and man, this is extensive and horrifying, by the way, and it includes um, some of the statements from uh, Israeli leadership as well. Uh, I'll find a couple of examples. Gaza has simply become unhabitable as people are witnessing daily threats to their very existence while the world watches on. For children in particular, the past 12 weeks have been traumatic. No food, no water, no school, nothing but the terrifying sounds of war day in and day out. And that's a statement by Martin Griffiths, the Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator on the 5th of January. And then we can uh, juxtapose that with Yoav Gallant, the Defence Minister of Israel, uh, on the 9th of October. So this is some pretty early intent, folks. I have released all restraints. You saw what we are fighting against. We are fighting human animals. This is the ISIS of Gaza. This is what we are fighting against. Gaza won't return to what it was before. There will be no Hamas. We will eliminate everything. If it doesn't take one day, it will take a week. It will take weeks or even months. We will reach all places. Uh, and then by uh, Israel Katz, the Minister of Energy and Infrastructure for Israel, we will fight the terrorist, terrorist organization Hamas and destroy it. And... You know, for both of these, Israel is going to be claiming that, no, we're not talking about Palestinians, we're just talking about Hamas. Mm -hmm. I, I want to be very clear about that. But the language speaks for itself, because in the next line, uh, Mr. Israel Katz says, all the civilian population in Gaza is ordered to leave immediately. We will win. They will not receive a drop of water or a single battery until they leave the world. So... Also, uh, there's another thing about the South African case. They were pretty good at showing that there was a connection between the rhetoric of the politicians and, you know, that it went further than... Uh, that it Just was rhetoric. What about Hamas, you know? Yeah. It was, uh, you know, Palestinian. Because this is something that we were discussing earlier in regards to the intent part of determining whether a genocide is taking place is that it does mm. provide, like, a really shady way out, which is say, oh, no, but it was just by chance that those things happen. It's just bad luck or just that's just the nature of war. But they said they're going to turn off water and then they did. You know, like, no, I think it actually goes beyond just rhetoric. Now they say we're giving them water. How can we be committing genocide against them? You know? Yeah. And, that, you know, they, I mean, this will come up with the votes thing again as well because there was there were two votes they made in favor. Israeli judge voted in favor of two things. Yes, absolutely. South Africa considers uh, that a link does exist uh, between the rights of protection is sought and the provisional measures it requests. Uh, Israel considers that the measures requested go beyond what is necessary to protect rights. And then on page 19, uh, point 58, uh, the court has already found 
that at least some of the rights asserted by South Africa under the Genocide Convention are plausible. Now, this is, you know, short and sweet. This is saying that the Palestinian people, as a distinct as distinct members of a distinct group, have some rights that under the Genocide Convention that plausibly need to be protected. Uh, that's That line in itself is incredibly cut and dried. Like that alone should put the lie to a lot of of the Israeli and US propaganda on this. The court goes on to say uh, they consider that by their very nature, at least some of the provisional measures sought by South Africa are aimed at preserving the plausible rights it asserts on the basis of the Genocide Convention in the present case, namely the right of the Palestinians in Gaza to be protected from acts of genocide and related prohibited acts mentioned in Article 3, and the right of uh, South Africa to seek Israel's compliance with the latter's obligations under the convention. Therefore, a link exists between the rights claimed by South Africa that the court has found to be plausible and at least some of the provisional measures requested. So South Africa has the right to make this claim to the court and the basis on which they are making the claim is a plausible one. Mm. So this is, we are going to investigate this for the next few years. And now we get into the interim orders. I do want to quickly just go over... Uh, so this is section V5, uh, we're on page 21, risk of irreparable prejudice and urgency. Do you want to just quickly speak to that in terms of, we've covered it like here and there already? Um, so yeah, um, so yeah, again, like you can't undie people once you've killed them. Um, and, um, you know, again, like, uh, you know, this is anticipating a bit Israel's defences, that it is providing aid and all civilian deaths are incidental a, a, a byproduct of the nature of the war. It's fighting in legitimate self-defense. Um, so, you know, and of course, the, the court isn't ruling on whether it's legitimate self-defense, obviously. But yeah, so it's basically just, you know, talking about irreparable prejudice, meaning that pretty much the, what, what you destroy can't be brought back. You know, you can rebuild a home, but it's not going to be the same. And and you definitely can't uh, bring people back to life. And then beyond that, in terms of cultural destruction, um, oh, the destruction yeah. of universities, um, yeah. of facilities, of public services, uh, these are all things which are very hard. This is a very um, one of the, I think, um, things that makes genocide an attractive proposition to a, a power that seeks to expand, is that if you destroy a graveyard or an ancient mosque, it can't be brought back, you know? If you wipe out people's architecture um, and so forth, you change the land forever. And, you know, we, we live in a, um, in a settler colonial society, and this is a process that happened in our own society to some extent, <laughs> to say the least. Um, and, you know, it, it's the part of it, like... If you're fighting a military war, like it's your means and your ends are separate. You try to destroy the other person's army to achieve something else. But if you are doing genocide, the means and the ends are exactly the same. You are destroying because you want to destroy. Right? And again, I don't want to play into this idea of, you know, like it's all because of hatred or anything like that. Is it frequently a very, very calculated, cold-blooded thing? And yeah, so this is that you know where where killing and cultural destruction come together. It's barbarism and vandalism, and Lemkin's original terms, 
brought together as one, and that's what genocide is, basically. Horrible. Sorry, just I'm taking a moment on that one. Uh, under under this section, the court states that uh, provisional measures will only be uh, exercised if there is urgency. So, if if the outcome of this uh, of this interim order is to put provisional measures in place, that means the court itself, on the evidence given, without even investigating further, believes that there is an urgency and the potential for irreparable prejudice. So, for people to be killed for things to be destroyed in such a way that it could be considered genocidal or in service to genocide, they will only make the ruling in that case. All right. I think this is a bit, this is a very important point about the process that the ICJ has gone through here. They will not be making provisional orders um, unless there's one, a plausible case that these things are taking place and two, urgency to stop these things taking place because of the nature of those things. Now, South Africa obviously is saying there is a risk of this. Israel uh, under point 64 denies uh, that there exists a real and imminent risk um, in the present case. Uh, it makes uh, a lot of the arguments that you've already outlined, Karen. Yeah. Um, so it's talking about working with the World Food Programme and, and giving aid that way. Um, it says it continues to supply its own water to Gaza by two pipelines. This is not real. <laughs> like, given yeah. given that okay. they have forced so many people into uh, refugee camps where they cannot access that water, we know that is untrue. Uh, but making claims of this sort, well, like hospitals, they've got a lot of lot of hospitals. So. Oh yes, they said they they've got six um, field hospitals. Yeah, yeah etc. And. Uh, this again, it reads like a bit of a deadpan. Um, the bit is the the ruling says according to Israel, tents and winter equipment have also been distributed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes. It goes into this a little more with precedents um, and uh, reference to other reports and rulings. Again, looking at reports from within the United Nations. There's uh, some stuff from the Secretary General, for example, as well. Then they state that the court considers that the civilian population in the Gaza Strip remains extremely vulnerable. So this is, you know, mm. despite any aid that is currently going to them. Uh, essentially, there's a there's a quote here from uh, Philippe Lazzarini, uh, the Commissioner General of UNRWA, or UNRWA, what a horrible acronym, uh, every time I visit Gaza, I witness how people have sunk further into despair with uh, the struggle for survival consuming every hour. Uh, the WHO have estimated that 15% of the women giving birth in the Gaza Strip are likely to experience complications. It indicates that maternal and newborn death rates are expected to increase due to the lack of access to medical care. So South Africa uh, was making this part of the case uh, earlier in regards to creating conditions that would affect would negatively affect um, births yeah. uh, within the targeted group. Well, yeah, um, yeah um, preventing births. Yeah. Yeah. Point 72. In these circumstances, the court considers that the catastrophic humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip is at serious risk of deteriorating further before the court renders its final judgment. This is an incredibly key point because mm -hmm. people like Christopher Luxon um, are trying to play around 
uh, with what the rulings have been here to say, oh, no, they haven't ruled a genocide. The court understands as well that it hasn't ruled that yet because it wasn't being asked to rule that within three weeks because it takes years. They're saying that we know it's going to take a long time before our final judgment. The th things are so bad in Gaza that we are making these interim orders, that we are pushing these parts of it forward uh, because if we don't, these things cannot be undone. Um, they directly address Israel's statement and they basically say it's not good enough. Um, they say, while steps such as these are to be encouraged, so Israel um, has made a couple of um, claims around aid and saying that they don't, they're not going to incite, uh, like incitements are illegal, etc. Um, they say, while steps such as these are to be encouraged, they are insufficient to remove the risk that irreparable prejudice will be caused before the court issues its final decision in the case. So they're saying Israel is not doing enough as much as it says it is. Uh, and then they make the, the judgment that there is urgency, um, there's an imminent risk, uh, and uh, there'll be irreparable prejudice. So again, things will be destroyed, lives will be taken that cannot be undone. Also to the rights under the convention, you know, this is again, it's important we have to pull this back to the, the convention itself because this is what gives people the obligations to act under international law. It thinks that this is a going to be a problem before it makes its final decision. Again, in a few years, I just I want to keep hammering this home. Yeah. The, the court knows, South Africa knows, Israel knows, everyone, like US spokespeople know. Uh, I don't know about our, if our politicians know this or not, honestly. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I think some of, them are... the of some of them are... Everyone else, you know they're lying, but these people <laughs> would be that they know. In, uh, in seriousness, they know. They know yeah. how the ICJ operates or they have been told. Um, yeah. you know, Chris Luxon saying, oh, I don't, I'm not an expert on this. No, go away. You're not. You. I, I, it doesn't matter if you are or not, you will have taken advice and they will have told you that this is interim orders. And then we get on to the conclusions. Uh, and we've only got a few more pages to go, but I, you know, this is where the, what what do we need to do? Um, mm -hmm. What needs to happen now? Uh, so it lays out just briefly why these measures are necessary uh, with reference to everything we've already talked about. Uh, we're back now down on page 23 for everyone mm -hmm. uh, reading through with us. And yes, I, I just want to be very clear. I just a quick cutaway right now. We will have missed stuff where, you know, we're not going through this word by word. We're not going to necessarily go and do deep dives on the legal technicalities. Sorry if I didn't define something uh, perfectly. Uh, hello to everyone who is going to try to use that as a way to argue against how we've described this. Uh, fuck yourselves. In the... Present case, having considered the terms of the provisional measures requested by South Africa and the circumstances of the case, the court finds that the measures to be indicated need not be identical to those requested. So this is the ICJ saying w there are measures needed, but the ones that South Africa has asked for yeah. are not necessarily the ones that we're going to require. So you'll remember uh, when we initially went through those, there are a couple, uh, for example, where uh, South Africa requested for a week um, that Israel had to give evidence that it was changing tact. We now know that the court has asked for a month, just as an example, but there are a couple more um, along those lines. Now, this is important. Number 78. The court considers that, with regard to the situation described above, Israel must, in accordance with its obligations under the Genocide Convention in relation to Palestinians in Gaza, take all measures within its power to prevent commission of all acts 
within the scope of Article 2 of this convention uh, in particular. And then it lists all the ways in which they could be doing a genocide and the ICJ says they should not. Now, this is where you and I probably differ somewhat. Let's get in. Because I'm, I'm rather cynical about this. This is basically mm-hmm. just saying the that Israel has to abide by a convention that it already had to abide by. Yeah. It's tautological. It's saying... Israel, you're not allowed to commit genocide, um, which is why why the court needed to order a ceasefire, an immediate cessation of all military action in Gaza. Now, I and this is one of those semantic things, right? Because we'll get into the orders. Because um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess my argument would be, and you know, I think there are people arguing both ways, and I think uh, both have strong claims. But I would say by laying these out. Um, in international, in an international a judgment of international law, it is essentially saying the same thing as you must cease military operations. That's true, and in the end, it was never going to have an effect on Israel. It's really about how it empowers um, people to push their governments around the world to take action. Absolutely, and this is why, like, it's being taken in such bad faith or like approached in such bad faith yeah, by Israel exactly. and the US because they know that this is what it does. They have to. They have to acknowledge. Well, I think that goes back to my point that the tautological nature of saying do what you're supposed to do doesn't really help the cases. Is yeah, that much. all of the work was done by South Africa. ICJ, absolutely. Um, I think yeah. the other reason that they have not, they didn't order a ceasefire. I, again, the language can be different, right? Is that um, yeah. some of the other parties aren't party to the ICJ? Uh, so they cannot order a ceasefire yeah. between Israel and Hamas in, in air quotes, which is yeah. why. And this is an argument that Israel has been making all along as well. Like, oh, we would love a ceasefire, mm-hmm. but they won't let us, right? Uh, which they will always have a way out in terms of the rhetoric they use. Yeah. Number 79, the court is also of the view that Israel must take all measures within its power to prevent and punish the direct and plausible, uh, direct and public incitement to commit genocide in relation to members of the Palestinian group in the Gaza Strip. Now, this is an interesting one. So, this is one of the ones that the Israeli judge voted with. Is that correct? Ah, uh, yes, yes, it is. Yep. Um, it, this isn't like quite. Um, th- there's a, a breakdown later of the uh, of the actual votes. So, uh, which yeah, kind of reiterates some of the stuff, um, but is more specific. Yep. Now, why do you, just for that one, I, I think we may as well cover this now. Why do you see this as a, a potentially an issue? So, um, well, because it can allow for a uh, political um, distraction, a big uh, dog and pony show where they uh, take some people and say, you know, you are naughty. We've um, we've seen you being naughty. And, you know, they, they appeal to the, the liberals of Israel and the world by saying we don't like these naughty people, these bad actors, bad people, who are, you know, like um, a disgrace to our wonderful only democracy in the Middle East. Um, and, and and then they'll have the backlash against that, and then like they'll be trying to entice people. But, I mean, it'll go down well in the US. You'll get all these people, you know, Democrats. Um, I mean, one hesitates to use the term shitlib um, loosely, but um, and they'll be like, oh, you've got to look up, you know, this guy or that guy, and, and, and that will take a lot of oxygen out of the, away from the real issues, yeah. uh, apart from anything else. Um, and, especially- and, you know, 
and it will just allow the the Israelis to claim that they have a, a judicial system that follows a particular, uh, you know, is, is a legitimating tactic. And it also puts people in the position to, you know, just have like a sacrificial goat, right? Oh, absolutely. And you, you've seen kind of like a couple of people, <laughs> yeah. like Netanyahu in particular, as being kind of stood up as that yeah. guy. Oh, we didn't know. It's all this bad guy. We tried to stop him. Um, oh, too bad. Yeah. Gaza doesn't exist anymore, but yeah. we'll do the right thing. We'll prosecute him. Um, you know, if, if it even gets to him, and I'm not even claiming that it will, it'll be a bunch of others. And the more they, that also plays into that, you know, that like Israel has the right to defend itself, but they are going too far. Yes, exactly. Sort of. It's how they did it. It's not that they're killing people. It's just they're killing just a bit too, few too many. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Um, yeah. um, and it also goes directly against, you know, Lemkin's considerations around what genocide was. Uh, so, yeah. you know, there, there can be leadership at the top who are making these decisions and with intent um, and directing them to happen. But the genocide is perpetrated by millions, not by one or two yeah. people at the top of the pile. Number 80. Uh, the court further considers that Israel must take immediate and effective measures to enable the provision of urgently needed basic services and humanitarian assistance to address the adverse conditions of life faced by Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. This one is, I mean, obviously, and what's horrifying uh, in regards to it is the immediate release of the new propaganda line out of Israel, which was to go after UNRWA um, within what? A minute, like like it was literally a minute, wasn't it? It was it was very soon after yeah. the ICJ ruling, uh, alongside these sudden like organic protests at the border of Israeli people, uh, just somehow getting into military installations and blocking the aid trucks. Yeah, yes. I mean that like both of those things are just genocidal. <laughs> I want to be yeah. very clear about that. Like stopping the aid at this point is genocidal. The countries who have threatened. To withdraw or withdrawn funding, UNRWA, which is the most important aid organization on the ground in Gaza, that is yeah. that is directly genocidal. Now it's not just complicity. Yeah, absolutely. It's extraordinary that, that, that um, our country is considering it. It's just absolutely mind blowing. Really, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, we are teetering on the edge of an abyss here. I feel absolutely. It's it's really it's really horrific stuff. They also say that Israel must uh, stop destroying the evidence. Um, like what? So this is one of the the fact that this was one of the interim orders that they chose to take through from South Africa is incredibly incredibly indicative of the fact that they're continuing yeah. to prosecute this case. Like yes. and and again, well, this is one Israel voted against, so they're happy to vote for those. You know, they're prosecuting the incitement and um, for they must provide aid, but they had to vote against this one. That tells you something. It really it? does. Um, and the fact that the ICJ saw fit to make an interim order of this means that mm. they know it is urgent and that uh, mm -hmm. there is irreparable prejudice. Um, there is risk of irreparable uh, prejudice, i.e. Israel is destroying evidence and will continue to do so unless this ruling is enforced. Yeah. Well, there's a... Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then there's a little bit about the uh, submission uh, by Israel, uh, saying that it's going to be a month instead of a week. And then they uh, say all this stuff is kind of binding. You know, like these are the rules under this convention. 
uh, you should probably do it. <laughs> you know, you have a legal obligation now. Yes. And and that they're, they're the good guys, essentially. And just finally, the uh, I guess basically the final point before the votes, they say the court deems it necessary to emphasize that all parties to the conflict in the Gaza Strait are bound by international humanitarian law and do this horrible little piece uh, which um, Israel and the West have seized upon, which I'm just not even going to read out, but you can read it yourself. Uh, it's just about the about uh, Hamas and the hostages, which they... now, how, many, how many Palestinians have been? Uh, I mean, sorry, the, we don't know from Gaza, obviously, where supposedly Israel's acting in self defense. But how many Palestinians have been arrested in the West Bank since October the seventh? I think it's something like six k. Yeah, six thousand. And um, does Israel have jurisdiction in the West Bank? Not according to international law, it is not its country. Therefore, they are all hostages as well. So why are they not being talked about? Yeah. And I mean, it kind of brings me to another point that this is about the, the identity of the people under attack is Palestinians. Yeah, it's not Everyone just Gaza. It's not Palestinians who happen to live in Gaza. Um, or it's not, it's definitely not Gazans, you know, because a lot of them aren't. Gazan, you know. Um, so yeah, um, yeah. It's on the one hand, you have this totally gratuitous mention of something that isn't really relevant to the case, and on the other hand, they are just ignoring a the same crime on a scale that is twenty times as large. So for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Israeli hostages, there is 20, you know, and you know, I don't know if you know the reports of the sort of violence that has Absolutely been on since October the 7th, it's gone from bad to absolutely. Yeah. I and mean, I mean, this is why the West Bank is barely in the media, right? Because yeah. it immediately gives a lie to all of Israel's rhetoric, shows that, like, this is genocidal. Like, why are you even in the West mm. Bank? What are you, like... As soon as people start asking that question or seeing that information, they're like, wait a second. That's... You can ask another question is, uh, where are your borders? Oh, yeah, that's a hard one, though. <laughs> is it? Well, I mean, well, I mean, it might be a hard one, but the fact that they won't answer it is actually quite telling. Well, it's a hard one for them because it changes day to day depending on um, who they're talking to. Yeah, yeah, yes, true. Um, I, I like, you know, um, like the US started, has, you know, started like, um, I think under George W. Bush, they started calling Israel allies. But of course, even though we have to be very precious about the word ceasefire, um, they are calling people allies who aren't allies. And the reason Israel is not an ally of the United States is because the United States can't actually go into a military alliance with Israel because if you're in a military alliance, you have to know where the borders of the other country are, and Israel refuses to say where. Just, just such a joke, eh? I know, I know. It's, uh, so the final yeah. parts under point 86 is the votes, um, and I think two votes go 16 to 1 in favour, and the yep. two votes we mentioned go 15 to 2. So... Yep. As close to unanimous as you're going to get. Um, yes. Certainly far more so than anyone expected. Uh, and mm. that's a wrap, essentially. That is the, the provisional orders have been made. 
I just want to mention that um, Joe Sebutinde, that the um, Ugandan, the uh, Ugandan, yeah, she. Um, I, I I feel that her votes, not even you know, voting against things that even Israel voted yeah. for, um, just like is quite interesting, quite bizarre. Um, yeah. So apparently, um, she had a, uh, a a history of being independent from uh, Museveni. The uh, Museveni, sorry, the Yoweri uh, Museveni is the uh, president of Uganda, and he's so good at the job they keep letting him be president. It's been thirty five years or so so far, so he must be really really popular. That's what I say. Um, uh, and um, and one of the reasons. She's in the ICJ as he, he wanted to pack her off then. Oh, wow. Um, but I look at these votes and I kind of go, this is almost like a cry for help. <laughs> this is someone saying that they cannot vote with their conscience. Wow. No, they're not even voting in favour when Israel's voting in favour. So, I mean, I could be wrong. I don't know how these things work, but it just seems really Start absolutely that Uganda, you know, the, the Ugandan judge should vote like that. Yeah, and and on the back of that, these provisional orders came out. Now, I guess the big question, and we probably want to wrap it soon, but the big question off the back of that is: given all of this, I would certainly say that parties or, or you know states that are parties to the genocide convention are now obligated to prevent mm-hmm. uh, genocide in Gaza as indicated as plausibly happening by the International Criminal Court of Justice. Absolutely, yeah. And they were before, yes. by the way. They were also obligated before. Oh, of course. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. But, yes, it is, It is. you know, a good tool for activism to push leaders um, around the world. What do you... Now, I, I'm going to ask you to maybe not predict, but at least try to figure some stuff out. We've seen the way that... And we've talked about during the podcast the way that Israel and the US in particular have tried to spin this. You've seen a lot of uh, other Western allies uh, pick up that same rhetoric um, and lean into the obvious distractions around stuff like the UNRWA alleged Mm -hmm. uh, terrorists uh, rather than interact or engage directly with the ICJ ruling. Mm -hmm. How, How... what are some ways you could see this playing out? Oh, I don't know. I think we just we just got to put our heads down and keep fighting. It's just it's very hard. It's very hard. Like you know, uh, uh, all ever since the Korean War, people have been announcing the imminent demise of the U.S. Empire and its weakness and it's a paper tiger and, you know, and they don't seem to actually get tired of it even as they get more and more strong. I wonder if maybe this is a sign of weakness, um, that, that things are being pushed further because, I mean, I can't imagine that when this is over, once they have stopped bombing Gaza. I can't imagine that there will be any more of these sorts of operations. Um, none of this mowing the lawn stuff will be, you know, I can't, you know, personally I can't imagine it. But then, you know. Maybe there'll be more. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just, you, it's hard to know. It is. But, you know, like, again, I, I feel that maybe if we start 
this to me, you know, is why I've why I've um, spent a lot of time focusing on genocide is that once people get it, once people see it, I think that you can't unsee it, you know. And I think that's also why the word has been so twisted and policed, you know. It has been policed in extraordinary ways, um, in a way because you like they're saying you can't use it certain ways because that dishonors the people who died in the you know in Nazi genocides. David Seymour did that in and, the house today. Uh, yeah, well, I mean that is. Uh, it's like, you know, I mean, when I, um, I wrote about this, I compared it to the days when people said there was real rape, which was someone jumping out of a bush with a knife and uh, raping someone, and other things weren't real rape, you know. Um, they, you know, like they try to create this false division, but the rape is about an act taking place without consent. It's not about these preconceived notions about what it should be and what we're supposed to be concerned about. And, you know, guess what? In both cases, they use an emotive and racially loaded version uh, to cover up the crimes of, well, <laughs> the wealthy and the white for the most and part. And it's no coincidence that that's why they've weaponized oh. that in particular um, yeah, absolutely. As, a, as a series of rhetoric. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we are, we live in a white supremacist society, and we, you know, the the way discourses are shaped is to you know pre-exonerate <laughs> the West and the you know and the the powerful and the you know all, all of us liberal democracies because we're so liberal and democratic, <laughs> <laughs> so much better than the evil people who are mean to their women and so forth. Well, mm. I thank you so much for joining us. First yeah, of all, it's been fantastic no to have you on. Um, and yeah, no, I really enjoyed to it. Drag you through this document for the benefit of our audience. Yeah, where can people find your work or find you online? Oh, right. I, um, yeah, I just uh, I have um, the uh, blog. The blog's just on genocide dot com, um, and I'm on Twitter. The handle's K-R Kelly, spelt weirdly, I think. Oh, well. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll link both in the summary. Yeah. Oh, I'm on uh, Blue Sky as Fantastic. well. All right. Yeah. Uh, um, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Uh, it's a real pl- privilege to to have been able to bring you uh, an episode like this. It's something quite a bit different from what we usually do. Um, I hope that it's been useful in any way at all. I, you know, we haven't really done uh, this before, so bit of a new concept and format some of it might have fallen flat I'm, I'm sorry for that if that's the case because it's certainly uh, something that i want to treat incredibly seriously um and want to do everything i can to increase knowledge of uh given the current state of things um if you have found use in it please clip this find the bits that uh, are useful to you share them share the episode uh, let people know that you know, there are, there is some media uh, going through and trying to uh, communicate these things to people um, in as much of an objective way as I'm capable of, uh, given my base values, you know, uh, not wanting people to be genocided, for example. But yeah, it's, it's we really appreciate your support. And I hope this has offered something that will help you articulate and 
push back against the Western rhetoric uh, around the whole thing. So that's been our midweek episode of One of 200. We'll be back on the weekend with current events um, and then maybe have something for you mid next week as well. We'll catch you next time. If artifices are the nine, live in a pointless slide, but I'm learning all your lessons. Fucking politics is no distinction. The words are now. It's paid with good intentions. And I'll admit that I'm at a loss for what to say when they cross the criticism across the ought to stay. Cause I live amongst the people every day. Forgetful fucking rain